I think if this happens again, that I think that the Catholic Church will respond differently. I think that um, many of them probably realized it was a mistake to shut the churches down and that the faithful didn't have access to the sacraments. And I mean, I hope and pray it doesn't happen again. I don't know um, where they were getting their advice from. Um, I do know if they talk to scientists that um, there are a lot of scientists that agree with the public health policies that were in place. And it's very hard for me to understand where they're coming from, like from reading the, the primary literature. And, you know, there's a lot of scientists and a lot of doctors out there who disagree, but they all seem to be like canceled by the media. Hi, everyone. My name is Tim Carone, and I'm the head of the What's Our Future podcast. I'm a member of the Society of Catholic Scientists. And in this podcast, I interview other Catholic scientists about their research, how that research fits into some of the big questions we face in church teachings. We also explore my guests' Catholicism, their religious journey, what parts of church teachings they find challenging as a scientist, and, and why. Finally, we discuss the future of their area of research as well as future faith and reason. Today, I interview Kara Westmark, an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at University of Wisconsin-Madison. She studies the amyloid beta protein precursor and amyloid beta in Alzheimer's disease, Down syndrome, fragile X syndrome, and autism. We discuss her background in research as well as the response of the Catholic Church to covid and the challenges Catholic scientists faced during the pandemic. We also touch on future pandemic responses. This podcast is unique, and I hope you value it. Please subscribe to the podcast. Please let others know about it. And let us know how much you like it by giving it a five-star rating. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Tim Carone with What's Our Future podcast. And today... Uh, very happy to have Dr. Kara Westmark. Kara's on faculty at Department of Neurology at the um, University of Wisconsin School of Medicine Public Health. And uh, she's been there working on Alzheimer's and Fragile X syndrome, which we'll learn about later in the podcast. So, Kara, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. So, you know, we had a really good discussion, you know, initially as we kind of w- walk through the podcast and and your background and notes and you I really your family I was very uh kind of jealous of it it was sounded like a very cohesive um very strong catholic family and um the, you know I mean the kind of family that life I think a lot of people <laughs> that I know would aspire to so uh good for you so you're born and That's raised right. Dubuque right so Dubuque um is in the eastern part of Iowa, right on the border of Wisconsin and Illinois. So a small city, about 60,000 right. people. They actually call it Little Rome because it has seven hills. I mean, everyone thinks Iowa is so flat, but, you know, the running joke is the best thing to come out of Iowa is I-80, but it's actually um, <laughs> very scenic in Dubuque, a lot of bluffs, the uh, Wisconsin glaciers miss that part of the state. So they call it Little Rome because it's seven hills. Yeah, I've uh, you know been through there a lot. It is it is flat, and uh, my son almost went to Iowa State, so we spent some time going through there. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of the the country's breadbaskets for sure. But uh, and then you went to Clark right. College, um, right? Clark in is Dubuque. a small Catholic liberal arts school in Dubuque. About nine hundred students when I was there in the late nineteen. It was. Um, Started, um, the founder was um, Sister Mary Frances Clark. She was a nun from Ireland, and a group of sisters came from Ireland and started the school in the early 1840s. When I lived in Tucson, I couldn't imagine people in the 1800s living there in the summer. It was so hot, and I can't imagine someone like a sister coming into Iowa in the 1800s and, and how just uncomfortable and difficult it was. Uh, now, is Clark a, a yeah, Catholic it's university? Catholic. It, it started out it's as a, an all-girls school and then in the 1960s, 1970s. It, it went co-ed. Right. Okay. And then on to, to Notre Dame. Huh? Made your family yeah, happy, um, evidently. So, um, the, uh, the chemistry teachers at Clark were very supportive of, you know, encouraging students to go to graduate school. And I had applied to the biochemistry department at Notre Dame. So my parents were ecstatic. I got accepted. I, 
I still remember the day the letter came out was in January of my senior year. It was within a few days of my mom's birthday on the 26th. And so she called me at school and she's like, there's a letter from Notre Dame, but she wouldn't open it. I'm like, she didn't want to open my mail. I'm like, it's okay. You can open it. You can read it to me on the phone. So she finally opened it and then she had to bring it up in person to give it to me and walk with me over to my um, advisor's office, Sister Diana's office and share it with her. So, um, and my dad, you know, was very happy to have a chance to go to the Notre Dame football games. For, well, it was seven years because um, one of my sister Pam um, went to Notre Dame also for her PhD in biochemistry. So between the two of us, he was going to football games for seven years. So he really enjoyed that. Good for him. Yeah. Uh, when I was there, it was one of the first things I got during faculty um, orientation was this is how you get you know season tickets for the football team. It was, uh, and it was interesting, too, that uh, we were briefed on, on Fridays before home football game that if we saw people uh, walking around with a map or may look a little lost, we were to go up to them and uh, offer our help in, in finding, you know, where, wherever it is they wanted to go. Because, and this surprised me, they said that, because you'd be shocked how many people consider uh, going to a football game at Notre Dame Stadium to be on a bucket list. And uh, I was a little taken aback by it. It was a little over the top for me, but... Uh, uh, but yeah, it's it's and it's like a lot of college football traditions. There's there's a number of things that go on that you have to have to attend and watch. And yeah, it's it's great. So good for him. So, but I think you know, like a lot of us, your graduate career was probably had a lot of ups and downs. It yeah, was challenging. So I, I think graduate school is probably challenging for everyone. I mean, it was wonderful to be on such a, a beautiful campus and you know have access to sacraments and daily mass and everything but I think just you know the rigor and training of graduate school is very difficult um, one of my um, friends in school described it as boot camp for scientists sort of how the army tries to break you down and build you up in their mold and uh, I don't know I've always kind of had a yeah trouble sort of with that analogy I, I sort of considered us more like diamonds we just needed diamonds in the rough we just needed some polish and not kind of being crushed like coal but um, you know that doesn't kill you makes you stronger and um, we survived so. yeah I, I really miss mass daily mass at the basilica there and and in an evening rosary in the grotto um yeah, I think I don't think I've met anyone who said, "Oh, yeah, my graduate career is great, no problems, sailed on through." Uh, at that point, they're either lying or they never went to graduate school. Is sort of the uh, my conclusion. Now, you said you had a sister, uh, Henry Spillian, who was sort of very, um, in certain way, very seminal in your in your yeah, career. When I was applying to college, we needed recommendation letters, so my parents had suggested asking my grade school principal, her name was Sister Henri Spillian, and she was probably about four and a half feet tall and 80 pounds. She was a very um, small person, but very strong-willed. She really kept that grade school running during what was a very hard time for Dubuque. Um, the recession hit Dubuque very hard. We had a, the highest unemployment rate in the country during the 1980s recession. It hit like 23%. And so... Um, she really kept the school going. And so I asked her for a recommendation letter for college. And when I went to pick it up, she asked me what I wanted to do. And, you know, I was um, interested in science. I really enjoyed my high school chemistry and biology classes. And at the time, I was thinking about um, being a medical technician. My mom thought that that would be a really cool job. Um, one of my cousins was getting married and his fiance was a medical technologist. And so I told her I was thinking about that. And she just comes out and says, no, medical research. And, you know, I had never heard of medical research before. And I thought she misunderstood me. And I kept trying to explain medical technologist. And she kept coming back with no medical research. And I'm thinking to myself, she's kind of bossy, you know, like my parents, you know, never told me what to do. They just encouraged me to find what I wanted to. So I you know, I completely forgot about what she said for like a whole decade. I went to college, I went to graduate school, and 
um, as I was finishing my PhD and I had accepted a postdoctoral position at the UW-Madison. It was an Alzheimer's research lab. And I'm falling asleep one night thinking to myself, Alzheimer's research, that's medical research. And it just like light bulb just went off in my head, like, well, Sister Henry said to do medical research. So, you know, I can't say that the conversation got me into medical research, but it's kept me here, you know, through the years um, when it's been difficult, when I felt like I'm failing, not smart enough, not doing well enough. You know, I always think about her words and really feel like I found my vocation and I'm doing what I should be doing. So um, it, it, I think of her words, you know, often as I'm doing my work. Yeah, I think you're very fortunate to have landed on something that you feel strongly is a vocation for you. You know, I that's sort of one thing I've struggled with sort of my entire life. Um, and and I know in talking with Richard Bonomo, we, um, he, he's infusing energy and knew from day one that's what he wanted to do. And I think he was, people like yourself and he are, are fortunate, to be honest, because I've just struggled to uh, figure out uh, kind of what, you know, God's calling is. And, and it's just, and I think I'm more typical than most, but I don't know, so far I'm over for 2. I met two people on a podcast who um, knew exactly what they wanted. And so, you know, I think. So, um, yeah, in fact, that's where we met, right, was at uh, the gold mass that Richard yeah. organized. Um, uh, it was really great. He, he says he wants, to ha- he wants to maybe turn that into an annual event and maybe create a chapter of the Society of Catholic Scientists in Wisconsin. So uh, that's, you know, TBD. I think it'd be great. So anyway, all right. So you said you went into Alzheimer's uh, research at right. UW, right? So we've all heard of it, Alzheimer's. Um, I think it kind of scares people. They worry as they age. Uh, just kind of a high-level overview sure. of Alzheimer's. Sure. Just so ground everybody. Alzheimer's disease is a neurodegenerative disorder. Um, predominantly affects people as they get older, um, in their 80s and 90s. Um, the current estimates are about 5.8 million people in the United States. So that would be similar to the uh, population size of the state of Wisconsin. Um, Alzheimer's disease is characterized by accumulation of a peptide in the brain. It's called amyloid beta. Um, we don't really know at this time if this amyloid beta is a cause or a consequence of the disease. Uh, the area of focus um, for my research is at the molecular level. So how does the brain make beta amyloid? And so when I moved to Wisconsin and started my postdoctoral research, the lab I worked in um, was in a field called post-transcriptional gene regulation. So um, in high school biology class, um, if people kind of remember when they first learn about the central dogma of molecular biology, uh, this is the dogma that explains the genetic flow of information. So how DNA um, makes RNA and RNA makes protein. So DNA is transcribed in a nucleus and it makes RNA. And then there's these family of proteins that binds to that RNA and protects it. So these are called RNA binding proteins. So my work the past 20 years has been looking at these RNA binding proteins and how they bind to RNA and regulate the synthesis of proteins. Um, So for amyloid beta, there's a messenger RNA called amyloid beta precursor protein. And we were studying how proteins bind to this message, regulate the synthesis of a protein called APP, amyloid precursor protein, and then how that's processed to form this beta amyloid that accumulates in the brain. And this is important because if you understand how the protein is made, you can find drugs to modulate the levels of the protein which may lessen um, the severity of the disease, the progression of the disease. Um, So that's um, a little bit of background on uh, our Alzheimer's research and uh, 
we're interested in, you know, finding drugs that, that regulate the pathways that contribute to symptoms of the disease. Now, is APP the only source of the, of the plaque? Were there other ways of, of producing so, that so plaque in the brain? amyloid beta is the, the major um, peptide in the plaques. There's other components. Um, there's also other pathology associated with Alzheimer's disease, such as um, tau uh, neurofibrillary um, tangles. So um, the field has predominantly focused on amyloid beta, um, which is probably to the detriment of drug discovery, just to put all your eggs in one basket like that. Um, there's also been a lot, lot of work on Tao. In fact, sort of like the religious joke is there's the Baptist and the Taoist, the people who believe in APP or the people who believe in Tao. It's probably a combination of both. Um, and then there's a lot of pathways that are really under study, you know, the effect of diabetes on the development of Alzheimer's disease, the role of inflammation. There's been such a focus on beta amyloid that some of these other processes have not been studied as well. In fact, um, I'm in the middle of a really good book right now that just came out. It's called um, Alzheimer's Disease, How Not to Study a Disease. And it it's going goes through like sort of like the history and the politics of how we how the field has so much focused on one area to the detriment of some of these other areas. But Yeah, I um it's also genetic. Is there a genetic component to it? I mean, in other words, if, you're, if your grandparents have it, there's a higher chance That's of you right. having it. And I, I think what um, a lot of people don't know is that um, the majority of Alzheimer's disease, you know, 97% plus of the cases um, are um, in the elderly, like, you know, mid-80s to higher um, this a small percentage where there's no genetic mutations, and one of those would be in the APP gene, which is you know why amyloid beta gets so much attention. But that's a very a small number of cases, and those people might get Alzheimer's disease in their 40s or 50s, so early onset Alzheimer's disease versus the majority of cases, which are called late onset Alzheimer's disease. So there's still a lot that we need to learn about the genetics too. There's um, several genes, you know. Um, precursor protein, the presenellin genes, uh, APOE um, is a uh, genotype is a risk factor. So um, that's why a lot of the field has focused on beta amyloid because of the genetic connection. And then the connection with Down syndrome. Um, so Down syndrome individuals have three copies of chromosome 21, which carries the beta amyloid gene. Um, and Down syndrome children can develop Alzheimer's disease at a young age, like in their 40s. There's that. I didn't realize that. Oh. So when we were talking, you said you, uh, you know, previous, you said that you had serendipitous, serendipitously discovered something related to fragile X. And I was wondering, I meant to ask you last time, but what did you mean by serendipitously um, discovered? So accidentally discovered. So um, when you work in a lab, you always have to do like control experiments, positive control, negative control for every experiment. And sometimes those controls don't work out how you anticipate. And when you follow up to figure out what went wrong, you accidentally discover something new that's you know, usually more exciting than what you said, the question you set out to answer in the first place. So um, how um, we got into doing a lot of Fragile X work was um, I was doing some Western blotting and we were looking for some novel targets, some novel mRNAs that bind to an RNA binding protein called Fragile X mental retardation protein, or FMRP. This is a protein that's missing in Fragile X syndrome. It's a, a rare neurodevelopmental disorder. Um, picture the worst case of autism you've seen. These children have seizures, autism, intellectual disability. On the uh, more severe end of the spectrum, they can't be left alone for 15 minutes a day. So um, we were looking for mRNAs that bind to this RNA binding protein. Oh, I should mention they, they just changed the name last week. It, 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 instead of Fragile X mental retardation protein, it's now Fragile X messenger ribonucleoprotein to, to avoid the negative connotation with mental retardation. 
So this, this RNA binding protein, FMRP, and, you know, I had done Alzheimer's research for a number of years. I had like all the antibodies and reagents in the freezer. So as a negative control, I screened my Western blots for APP levels, expecting them to be normal or expecting them not to show binding to FMRP. And it was, you know, the most abundant target in our screen, uh, which made it look like FMRP was regulating the synthesis of amyloid precursor protein. So, which was an exciting finding. You know, we reproduced the findings and followed up on it. And so this suggested that an RNA binding protein that was important for this rare neurodevelopmental disorder on the autism spectrum also was playing a role in Alzheimer's disease. So it suggested there was some drug repurposing strategies here. Um, as you can imagine, drug repurposing is very drug development is very expensive, um, especially if you have a rare disorder where there's not a lot of funding. So if you could possibly use drugs that are under development for Alzheimer's disease, where there's a lot of funding and a lot of research and a lot of labs working on it, if you could take that knowledge and apply it to a rare disorder, um, it can really move that field forward um, more quickly. So, um, We've been working on that for the past many years to test Alzheimer's drugs in Fragile X mice and vice versa, drugs under development for Fragile X Alzheimer's mouse. So I'm always curious about the process. When you say you, you went through this uh, looking at the controls and all, how, how long did it take from kind of beginning to end where you started the process and ended up with this realization that you had made a, made a um, discovery. What kind of a time frame was that? I mean, because I'm assuming you once you saw it, it surprised you. You had to go back and replicate it and ongoing discussions internally and people agreeing and disagreeing. How long did that take? And kind of was there anything interesting about that getting to a resolution? I, I think the original discovery, the, the first um, Western blot was probably about 2003, 2004. And then um, it wouldn't have taken very long to reproduce that actual experiment. A Western blot takes about a day. So we would have known that we had um, uh, elevated levels of um, APP on the Western blot um, in our, our fragile X samples. Um, you know, it would have just been a few days. Then we needed to, you know, do more experiments. Um, you know, look at um, where FMRP binds to the mRNA, do um, like co-immunoprecipitation assays to, to pull the, the message down with the protein, you know, talk to other people in the field to see, you know, what kind of studies are important to, to really prove this to the wider scientific community so that they would believe it. So to do all of those studies um, took about three years. Our first paper came out in 2007 in Plus Biology on this. And um, what really helped us was talking to, there is an organization called Fragile X, Fraxa Research Foundation. So it, this was started by parents who have children with Fragile X syndrome, and they wanted to find a cure for their kids. So the gene for Fragile X was discovered in 1991 and shortly after that, these parents started a research organization, and, and they went out to scientific conferences and went up to posters and talked to scientists and, you know, asked them, you know, will you do the methods you're doing in your lab and apply this to Fragile X syndrome? And, you know, they provided pilot fund. They did fundraising and provided pilot funding for that. So, you know, we talked to Fraxa and got their perspective on it. You know, we had started out, we were going to cross um, fragile X mice with Alzheimer's mice and make more severe phenotypes and study the pathway from that direction. And after talking to their medical director, Mike Tranfalia, who is a parent of two children with fragile X, we um, did the opposite approach. You know, they're looking for a cure. So we crossed our fragile X mice with mice that underexpress APP to see if we could reduce these proteins in fragile X and rescue phenotypes. And so, so we did, we, um, we had two-fold higher APP in our Fragile X mice. We crossed them with mice that don't express APP to reduce that. And we rescue behavior, you know, autism phenotypes, um, anxiety, uh, dendritic spine morphology, and 
brain. Uh, we, we rescued all the major phenotypes that people study in these fragile X mice by reducing APP and beta amyloid levels. So that was the subject of our second paper, which was about 2011. So it takes several years, you know, between coming up with the hypothesis and doing the experiments and doing everything in triplicate. And then a, a large part of time is um, getting the papers accepted for publication. They go into a journal and go through peer review and then address the reviewer's concerns or submit to a different journal, you know, depending if they're not interested in the topic or not. So it's a, it's a pretty lengthy process. You know, in, in, um, in our area, we have a, a website called archive.org for physics, math, computer science, so on, uh, where once you've submitted a paper for, to a um, referee journal uh, for review, you can post it out there for people to see. Uh, do you have something like that in, yes, the, in your do. field? Uh, it's called BioRx, and um, it's like, like you, once it's submitted, I mean, you can put it on there, even though it's not accepted yet for publication. Right. Okay. So the idea then is that the uh, this particular protein FMRP is not present in the um, so-called protecting or binding to the RNA for messenger RNA for protein development. Um, so it can't regulate or participate in that protein formation. But then you also said that um, in the process of doing it, you, you came across a situation as well where the food that your mice were eating seemed to have, uh, uh, depend on the, the number of seizures they had or the outcome of the seizures dependent on the kind of food yes, they were eating. this was a, another one of those surprising discoveries. So you know, after we established that FMRP bound to and regulated the synthesis of amyloid precursor protein, um, our next goal was to repurpose drugs to modulate this to help treat Alzheimer's. And so to treat um, mice, um, you have to, a, a couple of ways of dosing them is, you know, scruff them by the neck and give them an injection in the abdomen or use a feeding needle and go down the throat with the drug. And this is stressful to the animals to have to be restrained daily. And you know, honestly, it's stressful to the lab staff too, to have to go to the vivarium and dose several dozen mice a day. So we thought we would be really smart. We were gonna just put the drugs right into the mouse food and they would be dosed 24 seven when they ate and it would be less stressful to the animals and to us. Um, and as I said before, with science, you want to be as controlled as possible. So I looked into what was in the food. We were going to be synthesizing this very expensive drug and putting it into food. We wanted to know what was in the food so we would make our drug supplement to diet the same every time. And it turns out, you know, there's um, dozens of vivariums on campus, thousands of mice for medical research. And so these animals are maintained on um these chow diets. So um, if you have a pet at home, like a cat or dog that's on like a Purina type dog food, the brown pellets, that's what our rodents are on. So people who study mice and rats, they're on these brown pellet diets. And you, we, um, as a scientist, we don't know exactly what's in them. They come from a company. Um, the exact ingredients aren't provided. And so this isn't very well controlled if you want it to be the same if you make a batch now and you make a batch six months from now with your drug in it. So at the time we first incorporated the drug into the food, we changed diets to what's called a purified ingredient diet. They're more expensive, but they come from a company and they tell you the exact ingredients and they make it exactly the same each time. So we got our purified ingredient diet with our drug, and we also had our placebo control, our purified ingredient diet with no drug, and we put our mice on it and we tested them. We were not expecting that our placebo, our purified ingredient diet with no drug in it, would have an effect compared to the chow, but it reduced our seizures by 50%. And this is one of those findings, if your drug works that well, you're very happy jumping up and down in the lab. Uh, we needed to go back and figure out what was going on with the diet. So um, my lab has been studying that for 
the past 10 plus years now looking at um, the differences in these diets and how that affects seizures and other behavioral and growth outcomes. Was, was that a surprise to find that or was it kind of in hindsight it was, oh yeah, we should it, have expected that? It was that. a surprise at the time, but in hindsight, um, we probably should have expected something. It was just that I think, you know, 90% of Scientists really don't consider what they're feeding their animals unless they work in like a nutrition lab or like an endocrinology lab because these childs have plant-based hormones in them. So for the most part, I think people don't think about it. So it was a surprise to us. But but in hindsight, you know, after moving into more of a nutrition field, we should have expected something. Now, is this just allows you to remove any variability in your results or any uncertainties, or is there something about the fact that the, the cow milk-based protein may have some role to play here in fragile X or uh, Alzheimer's? I, I think that the diet could be playing a role. Um, one of the problems that we have in the fragile X field is that there's been a number of molecular pathways and a number of drugs that basically cure the fragile X mouse. You know, they're, they're very effective, um, very strong preclinical data. Then when they try to move these studies into clinical trials, the drugs don't fare as well. And so I hypothesize that there could be these diet drug interactions, which we see effects in animals. But when you move to a human, like we're all eating a variety of foods every day, we're not on what we would call this single source diet that these animals are on, um, you know, they're on one chow or one purified ingredient diet, and there's differences in those diets. And so the analogy with human development would be, well, as adults, we're all on a variety of foods. The time in human development when we're on a single source diet is infancy with the infant formulas. So babies who aren't breastfed um, are typically fed a cow milk-based infant formula, uh, a number of infants do have allergies or they're fussy, and the first alternative is to change to a soy-based infant formula. It's the number one alternative after cow milk-based formula. So um, I would propose that this cow milk-based formula and soy-based infant formula, these single-source diets, would be similar to having our rodents on a single-source diet. The chows are soy and grain-based for their protein whereas the purified ingredient diets are casein-based or a cow-milk-based protein. So, Would they see this problem or this issue in, in other clinical trials that were originally in, in used mouse models, uh, you know, say in cancer drugs or other drugs, would they yes. see the same I, issues? I think, those fields, I, I think um, in general the biomedical field has a problem translating promising drugs into clinical trials to... Um, I don't know if it's one in 10 or drugs that actually make it through, you know, up to phase three clinical trials. It could be an issue because, um, as you know, all, all drugs are tested in some type of animal before they move on to humans to prove um, safety and efficacy. Right. It, that would be kind of significant, though, if, if the food consumed by the animals um, during the the their trials, and then, you know, that the drug, promising drugs uh, failed or sh showed to, or failed to show any kind of efficacy simply because of the human diet, you know, could we be missing out on something significant? Um, I guess that's always and a fear. These, um, you know, other laboratories have done studies on um, some of the ingredients in these trials. So these ones that have soy protein as their source, They've compared, um, so soy is very rich in what's called phytoestrogens. Those are plant estrogens, plant hormones. And so if you're eating this as part of like a balanced diet, that's one thing. But if you're on a single source diet where that's all you eat all day, those bioactive components can be pretty high. For example, one lab sh um, did calculations showing that an infant who is solely fed soy-based infant formula is receiving the hormonal equivalent of five contraceptive pills, you know, for what an adult would receive. 
So, and, and, you know, there's differences based on like your genetic makeup. Um, Some people metabolize those soy phytoestrogens different depending on background, if you're Asian or American and process um, dating and S-equal and stuff, um, the different bioactive um, compounds. But still, it's it's quite a high concentration, and that can affect the constituency of your microbiota in your gut, um, you know, as well as other things. Yeah, yeah, that whole idea of uh, gut bacteria and, and things has just kind of exploded over the last few years. Um, I, I was, you know, I occasionally read about it, and it's it's pretty amazing stuff. I mean, it's certainly something there. Um, and, and there's no shortage of products that have come out to try to uh, get you to buy to, you know, take advantage of that. But so, yeah, interesting stuff. I mean, I, I've, you know, with, with Alzheimer's, my brother-in-law's father uh, passed away from Alzheimer's. He was a twin. And it was interesting. He, uh, his twin, uh, they developed Alzheimer's about the same time. And it was just a very interesting and difficult thing to watch, for sure. Is there is is there anything that gives you hope that that there's something on the horizon, or is it still just finding drugs that help incrementally in Alzheimer's? I, I know my biggest hope, I think, comes from prevention. If we can keep people from developing Alzheimer's disease, I think there's just so much more left to understand. Like I mentioned earlier, there's been focus on one pathway with um, amyloid beta, but I think as we learn more about other pathways and the contribution of diet and metabolism, how type 2 diabetes may lead into the, I mean, they've called Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes because of the connection, the, the blood glucose and insulin. So I think if we can find ways to prevent it, that that's what I see as the most hopeful. Yeah. Okay. So what I want to do now is maybe move on to the Catholic side of your life. And at the end, we'll bring stuff together. Now, you're, when I asked you if you're a cradle Catholic, you said, no, you're, you're Catholic since conception. I cradle was early enough. Uh, yes. Um, I, I grew up in a really Catholic environment. Both of my parents came from large Catholic families. My mom has six brothers and sisters, and my dad has five brothers and sisters, and they were all married to Catholics. So I have like 60 plus cousins. Dubuque, the city I grew up in, has a population of about 60,000 with 10 Catholic churches. I attended Catholic schools um, all through grade school, high school, college, and then graduate school. So, um, And, you know, at graduate school at Notre Dame, I think there's like 160 masses a week on campus. So it's, you know, very convenient for the sacraments and, you know, a very comfortable environment. Growing up, being surrounded by people with common beliefs. And, yeah, I think we had a similar experience growing up in a very, very Catholic environment. Now, as you went through your your career... Did you experience any challenges to your faith where you, where you questioned things more than you would have earlier? Um, did you find any difficulty in, in aligning your, your work you were doing and your science with your faith? It, you know, with me, for example, one thing was I was always questioning the existence of God. You know, does he really exist or not? Um, and there were other things, too, I questioned a lot as I kind of traverse my graduate career in college. Did, did you experience anything like that? I can't say I have. You, you know, like being Catholic my whole life, I just, it, you know, I've never had any Catholic doctrines that I've had trouble with or that, you know, like moving to Madison, which is very liberal, it, I think it was a little harder to be Catholic, to be in a secular environment because uh-huh. my whole life I was surrounded by Catholics. So, finding activities to participate in. It was a little bit more work. I mean, I always found like a volunteer activity or a Bible study group or something through church to be involved in. So so it wasn't as easy, but I wouldn't say that I've come across anything as a scientist that 
makes me question my faith. If, if anything, I think I, I find it hard that there's scientists who don't believe in God. You know, like when we're in the lab studying something and just seeing how beautiful and how intricate things are. If anything, I think it reinforces my faith. So, I've, you know, I've never had a problem with that. Like I know there's this huge secular argument about religion and science being, you know, mutually incompatible. And I've never felt that. I've never really understood it um, because the, the more I study and the more I learn, um, just sort of reinforces my beliefs and what I've learned, you know, in Catholic schools my whole life. So that's, you know, it's certainly different from mine that, you know, talking with Rich Bonomo on the first podcast, he sort of has similar experience. He, I haven't found anyone yet who's had the ups and downs that I have had. So I'm starting to get a little worried. Oh, I wouldn't be worried. It's good to question, and you know, it's probably surprising that some of us don't have some questions about some things. I, I just, I, I personally haven't. But. Yeah. So, when it comes to the church doctrine itself, I know one of the things we had talked about was, you know, your background in, you know, biomedical uh, work in genetics and things. That you know, you were pretty close, or at least the whole COVID thing was sort of in your swim lane. And, um, I, you know, I, 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 I was, I guess I was not happy with how the Catholic Church, the path they took with COVID, uh, because it seemed like our bishops decided to make it a, well, we're non-essential attitude. And um, I just found that um, really, it just angered me that, you know, they would, they would shut down the churches and, and shut down communion. Um, but I haven't, you know, you know, one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is to see what other people think about the things that I think about, obviously. And uh, how did you, how did you um, deal with the fact that, that, that our bishops made this decision that I, I, I you characterize it how you want. I characterize it as they kind of got rolled by the, government to to declare themselves non-essential and i think that's just to our detriment going forward but i'd like to hear your since covid was much more in your swim lane than mine yeah. i i'm in the same boat with you um i well for me covid started in march of 2019 because that's when the university here um start shutting down the research labs they sent all of the undergraduates home so I had several undergrads in the lab and we plan our experiments several months ahead because we do chronic dosing studies with the animals. So all my help went home. So I was like working double time, you know, doing their work plus doing my work. We, we got a special exemption for the lab to stay open because we had ongoing studies with the animals. But there was a limited number of people around. So me and my sister were on double. She works in the lab with me. So we were on double time for a while there. So I, one, I wasn't happy about everything getting shut down. And, you know, I think it was um, frightening for everyone at the beginning and mostly because of the media and how they handled it. But um, right away, I started um, actually remember the day it was March 19th because it was the Feast of St. Joseph. And I had just finished reading Father Calloway's book, Consecration to St. Joseph. And being the distracted person I am, I barely put the book down. And I'm like, I'm telling my sister, I'm like, you know, I'm so upset they're shutting down the lab. If we were studying viruses, we would, you know, still be going. I'm like, hmm, I wonder what's known about, you know, FMRP, the protein we work with in viruses. And I'm on PubMed looking it up. And there is actually one paper that our protein that's missing in our neurodevelopmental disorder, Fragile X, binds to Zika virus. And I'm like, hey, you know, like, I, I mean, I'm not a virologist, but the whole basis for how these viruses work is... Um, nucleic acids binding to proteins, which is what we do. And I'm like, maybe if um, we can show that this protein interacts with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus involved in COVID-19, we could repurpose some of the drugs that we're studying for um, COVID. And so we've started, you know, doing molecular modeling and looking into this um, early on in COVID. Um, we've been totally unsuccessful getting funding for this and now it's winding down, but um, so we, I have read 
a lot of papers on COVID. I've um, probably done over 100 hours of professional development type of conferences and seminars online learning about this. And I'm very disappointed in like the public health response to this. I think everyone is so afraid of this virus. And you know, if, if we look at like genetics, at our human genome, like 8% of our DNA as a human being is remnant viral DNA from viruses that our past ancestors have had. And we're, we're all afraid of this virus. And if you think of like the Catholic Church and how Pope John Paul II opened his pontificate, you know, on the balcony of St. Peter's Square with the words, be not afraid. And we're all afraid of this virus and our bodies are made of virus DNA. And, you know, we have more bacteria in our bodies than human cells. And, you know, the body is like beautifully made to fight infections. It's what we do. And we have people running around with masks on, you know, the masks don't really work unless maybe you're fitted for an N95. And then those are 95% effective. That's where they get their name from. It's, I mean, some of this stuff is just silly. So I, I, understand like the church has a long history of like kind of collecting all the data and then coming out with a decision um but i would have liked to see them get ahead of the game on this one and i mean they've done like psychological studies on people that showed if you give them enough false information um after i think about two months no matter how much logical information you give them you can't change your mind and so i would have liked to seen the church be proactive in this situation to prevent some of this havoc with how the world's been dealing with this it's just i haven't seen any science to support the these public health policies on this you know that was my biggest frustration because you know i, I like to think i was smart enough to go out and read some of the more technical stuff to uh, for example, at Johns Hopkins, and, and also since I'm a data guy, I, you know, looking at and trying to find data, you know, I, I know viruses that when they mutate in a body, they, they become more benign, right? They don't want to destroy the host. That, that's, a, that's a kind of general property of viruses. Is that correct? It, it can go either way. They can get oh, more okay. virulent or less virulent. But if you're right, if they get too virulent, they're going to kill their host and then they can't propagate. So right. Eventually, okay. they have to either kill everybody off or wind down to stay in existence. So. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the problems with the data was, you know, data quality is always a huge problem. And trying to match data amongst different data sets can be problematic because of how the data is captured, how it's defined. I think we've all heard about the fact that, you know, people, how many people in hospitals died either of COVID versus with COVID. Uh, maybe they had a, um, you know, there's, they had a heart attack or some sort of cancer and they happened to have COVID for, for a while. I think we were counting those as COVID deaths and trying to get authoritative data, which is difficult even in normal circumstances. Um, I think, you know, you can't make decisions unless you have really good data. And, you know, I didn't see, I certainly didn't see scientists, well, I shouldn't say that. There were some I found that were very authoritative about the data, very uh, helpful in understanding it. But to your point, you know, it, it, it was, it started running counter to, you know, what the information we're getting from the media and from the government. And once it started running a little too divergent from the mainstream media and the government, I started finding it more difficult for to find those people and their data and to be able to make more informed decisions. So then the question becomes, so what does the Catholic Church do in a situation like that? And I don't know who is advising our bishops, right? So I know you're in the, the Diocese of Madison, I'm in the Diocese of Milwaukee. I don't know who is advising them around this and providing input to our bishops whether they had science advisors or were simply depending on, um, you know, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops or they were making decisions based on just CDC. I don't think our bishops have PhDs in, in your area where they can make informed decisions. And I, I don't know, I, I just felt like they got rolled into being non-essential. We could all go to Walmart whenever we wanted and— there were as many people bef 
after, during COVID, during the lockdown, as it were before, and the same number of employees and all the stuff I wanted was there. The only difference is that people wearing masks. That was the only difference. So I can go to Walmart and I can go to the pet store and I can go to supermarket without any issues, but you know, couldn't, couldn't go to mass cause we shut it down. And I, I, that's what I, I'm, I'm just not, don't understand it. And my fear is that that has set a precedent that'll make it much more difficult for us to worship as, as we need to, as we want to, when other issues, um, start to manifest, whether it's another lockdown or some other government uh, edict. I, I think those are really good concerns. I, I think if this happens again, that I think that the Catholic Church will respond differently. I think that um, many of them probably realized it was a mistake to shut the churches down and the, the faithful didn't have access to the sacraments. And yeah. I mean, I hope and pray it doesn't happen again. I don't know um, where they were getting their advice from. Um, I do know if they talk to scientists that um, there are a lot of scientists that agree with the public health policies that were in place. And it's very hard for me to understand where they're coming from, like from reading the, the primary literature. And, you know, there's a lot of scientists and a lot of doctors out there who disagree, but they all seem to be like canceled by the media. You have to work a little bit to find some of these online resources. And, you know, I, I sit there when I'm watching them and I fact check what they're saying, you know, like I go to PubMed and I look up the papers and I'm like, yes, this is true. And, but this, I don't see this on the news at night. And it's, yeah. it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating. Yeah, I think too, just in general, people will be less inclined, you know, during the next lockdown. Um, I, I don't think there's going to be the, the level of cooperation amongst the population that, you know, we had the first time. And I think that the church the same way, I think the laity will, certainly I will demand things that, you know, become more vocal about staying open and and offering uh, worship. Even if it's something that, you know, like for example, our priest has um, type two diabetes. And so he, you know, that's a, you have to be aware of that, you know, during COVID while we do have a deacon, Right. So if our priest is really, it's not appropriate for him to be in church during worship during some, you know, next lockdown. Well, at least we have a deacon, right, who can perform that. And we have, you know, lay ministers and, and we should be allowed to come in and worship. The other thing, too, is, is that really galled me was I felt like I was being treated like a child, that it should have been my decision as to whether or not, you know, I should be able to go into church and worship. I don't, I don't need people telling me what to do. Right. I think part of it, I think the media with this, like follow the science and there was just this really, um, and I think that was more political science than biology. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. There was this huge guilt trip. Like it, it, if you wanted to go to church and you wanted to work and you wanted to go to school, you were made to feel guilty. Like you were harming other people by wanting to like lead a normal life. Right. Just like this huge guilt trip. And I, I, the science, I just don't see where it supported these measures. I mean, like you, you're a numbers guy and you were talking about the John Hopkins dashboard. And um, I haven't been on there for a couple of weeks, but I believe it's still under a million deaths. So like, I don't want to be insensitive to people who have had family members right. lost, but so a million out of a population of 360 million. So we're under 0.3%. And if we compare that to like a, a real pandemic, like the influenza pandemic of 1918 that killed like a third to a fourth of the world's population. You know, that's a a huge difference. I mean, you can crunch these numbers. Like I've gone to the DMV in Wisconsin and how many people died from car accidents and you can parse it by age group and compare this to COVID. And do we tell 20 year olds not to get in a car and drive to work because your chances of dying in a car accident are higher than dying from COVID if if you're a healthy young person. I mean, the, the people who are dying from COVID, um, and again, I don't want to be insensitive. I know a lot of people have relatives who have died, but it's the people who have um, comorbid conditions, underlying conditions, and maybe they don't know they have them. But it's the same people who would die if a bad influenza passed through um, right. a certain year. And we have drugs. I mean, 
they're not using them everywhere, but the, the main symptoms are blood clots and inflammation, and the medical community has good drugs to treat those. And, you know, we could do a little bit more preventive medicine for some of that um, to keep COVID from getting as far as it does before someone ends up in the emergency room and has to be treated with these things. Yeah, I know that 70% of the people who, who died of COVID, I think 70% were either uh, obese or morbidly obese. I think those are the categories. Uh, so they had some pre-existing condition, right? I, I still am not at all understanding the focus and the intensity around the closing of schools, especially at the younger ages, which we're now starting to see research coming out about how damaging that has been. Um, in fact, I just saw one paper where they compared test scores from students who um, schools never closed to those that did. And it, there's a three sigma difference there. And uh, that's, that's just very scary. Right. And that even the like um, teens and people, young adults with the increased suicides and drug abuse and stuff, it, it's affecting a lot. And then the elderly are more secluded. You know, I yeah. remember the going to mass um, went before the churches closed and uh, they had people sitting like six feet apart and had pews, um, you know, so you could sit in every other pew. And I imagine for some people coming to church is their like interaction with people for the week if you're living alone. And you could, I saw these two ladies come in and they were, I could see they were sitting there making sure they were six feet apart, but they just wanted to chat with each other. And I just could have cried because, it, you know, there was no sense that some, I guess this was right after they opened the churches. And there was, by that time, I had read enough to know there was no sense to some of these measures. And, yeah, I don't think we fully appreciate the, the derivative damage that has been done to people because of these lockdowns and other kind of massive restrictions, whether it's drug abuse and suicide. I don't think we've we've scratched the surface on that. Question is, is do, let me ask you this, do you think Catholic scientists, because of, they're Catholic, and I think have a different perspective that they have a, I don't want to say a duty, but something that propels them to want to get out in front of this and start to address some of the things that topics or concerns that have been ignored or intentionally ignored. I mean, do we have a, a responsibility to get out of our love for other humans to get out there and, and make things more easy to understand and put more of the truth out there in a more overt way instead of just talking about it. I mean, is there something, are we held to a higher standard around this? Well, as someone who like attended Catholic grade school and high school, I, I think that is instilled in you that you have, you know, you have a duty to do your best and to, to help people whenever you can. Um, with that said, I, I have, seen other Catholic scientists talk about COVID and they do have the opposite point of view as myself. I, I find that the most frustrating, you know, it's one thing watching the news and watching the politicians, but when other Catholic scientists are agreeing with what they're saying, that's what I, I, I find that the most difficult. Yeah. And I've had some conversations with those people, but it, it's, it just strikes me that they are thinking with the political science hat on and not their their science pure science hat on is you know they, they there's they have an agenda like some of the people we've seen on tv from our medical community and you know that's that's sort of what's important to them more important than than other priorities you know that you and i or others might might see as our you know something that catholic scientists need to be practicing but I do think that this um, whole pandemic has brought to light some weaknesses in the system that we can address moving forward. I mean, yeah. we had a pandemic like 1918 that was killing, you know, a third of the world's population. Um, you know, how would the hospitals and the healthcare professionals handle it? And, you know, having resources for people, you know, if there's food shortages and things. I mean, I think it's brought a lot of issues to light that um, maybe people can get ahead of in case something like this comes up again. 
Now, your your work, you know, there's been a lot of written around the, in the church around you know bioethics, and uh, a lot that the church has written on in uh, several papal encyclicals and others. How do you view your research from from the kind of that lens of of kind of bioethics, and you know, do you feel that you are aligning to the church's instructions and 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 teachings on that? And do you see any any difficulties with what you're doing that might run afoul of those? Uh, I I don't see any difficulties with you know, my specific research and what the Catholic Church teaches. Um, we had talked about this, so I, I have a quote here. Um, Pope John Paul II and the Pontifical Academy on Life's Communications on Ethics of Biomedical Research. So I'll just read it. It says the church respects and supports scientific research when it has a genuinely human orientation, avoiding any form of instrumentalization or destruction of the human being and keeping itself free from the slavery of political and economic issues. So um, this, and this was from their statement on ethics of biomedical research for a Christian vision. So from 2003, so the Catholic church promotes medical research, but within ethical guidelines, you know, to promote the integral good of man. Uh, I think another document would be Pope Paul VI, Guadiam et Spes from 1965. And I'm quoting, he said, um, if methodical investigation within every branch of learning is carried out in a genuinely scientific manner and in accord with moral norms, it never truly conflicts with faith. For earthly matters and the concerns of faith derive from the same God. Man, by his intellect, surpasses the material universe. He shares in the light of the divine mind. With the help of science and technology, man has extended his mastery over nearly the whole of nature and continues to do so. So I, if the Catholic Church seems to me to really support um, medical research. You know, we're finding, trying to find cures for disease, and that helps other people. I do think that there are a lot of um, bioethical issues in the sciences, um, for example, with um, embryonic human embryonic stem cells, with using aborted fetal tissue for research. Um, I think as scientists, and I know your audience um, will, could be like a lot of high school age students, um, I think something that one has to be careful about when you go into research is to be really careful to know what the materials are that the labs work with, that you're working with and collaborating with. I, you know, here, Madison is the stem cell capital of the world, is their nickname. And there's dozens, hundreds of labs on campus working with this stuff. And I, I think you do have to be careful to, you know, so you don't accidentally get involved in, with research that you disagree with. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, in preparation for our discussion, of, you know, reading up in that popped up on my radar screen and um, just familiarizing myself with how complex those issues are and understanding the sourcing of the stem cells. And, and you're right, it's, it's a difficult thing to understand, but it's also a difficult thing to know if you are abiding by church teachings and if you're not. And I certainly want to be, wouldn't be in that situation where I suddenly found out that the, the the stem cells I had sourced and were using and were making progress had, you know, accidentally come from a fetus. Because there is the adult human stem cell research, which right. research completely supports. So, yeah. And, yeah. you know, a lot of scientists, they just call them stem cells and they don't differentiate. So sometimes you read through a whole paper and you're like, well, what kind of stem cells are they? <laughs> <laughs> so obviously then, sort of bring these together, right? We've talked about your your research and your science, which is the reason side of the equation, and then we've talked about your faith. So bringing them together, it doesn't sound like you you don't you have too many issues or um I mean you find that the faith and reason being, you know, two sides of the same coin that they mutually reinforce one another and that, you know, both derive from God's creation. Yes. You know, I think it's sort of like two parallel paths. You know, science um, can tell you how something happens, but faith tells you why, you know, they're both, they're both seeking the truth. So. 
one of the things, you know, in my journey is, you know, I found that I had more tools on the reason side of the equation to help me understand the faith side of the equation, you know, because I was just stuck so long on technology and, and the things in astrophysics we do and build um, and the physics, you know, that I studied that clearly couldn't answer questions. But that's when I had to turn to the more tools in philosophy and art or music to try to help me understand these things further. And I think that's, that's to me, that was a, it sounds like a simple thing, but it was a, kind of a major epiphany for me to realize, you know what, if I, if I had these other areas that I could, that I learned about, acquired knowledge and use them, that I would be, my, my faith would be stronger and more substantive. And that, that's how it's, that's turned out for me. I don't know if you've had the same experience or not. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, the more I've studied science and the more research I've done, it just, I think it just makes my face stronger to, to see yeah. how beautiful everything is. You know, you have like the whole universe with all the planets and stars and then, and you think of like the number of stars in the sky. And then you think of just the universe inside your head and you have more brain cells in your head than, you know, stars yeah. in the sky. And there's just, you know, the more questions you ask and the more answers you, you know every answer you find you seem to find 10 more questions that come from that so it just sort of kind of builds upon it and it, it just it can't be random you know yeah i, I know i was talking with a a, um, a catholic scientist in the biomed field a while back and he he was saying how when he looks at a cancer cell in the microscope you know it's complex it's beautiful but it's only when it's introduced into its environment, you know, does it become evil. And even that was an interesting description about how something even that can have a complexity and beauty to it that, you know, its function is is bad, but its, you know, appearance was, was you know, a thing of beauty to him. And I'm not quite sure how to interpret that. I don't know if you've run into that kind of a dichotomy for your, on your own. I think we could probably make a similar correlation. You know, viruses have gotten a very bad name with COVID, but there are viruses that help people. So, um, and bacteria get a bad name too, um, you know, with um, infections and stuff, but we have more bacteria in our guts that help us digest our food than we have cells in our bodies. So I, I think that, um, you know, there's like a plus and a minus to a lot of these things and you're right, that's what environment they're in. This has been great. Thanks Thank you. so much. 